From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Very glad to be with you. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price along with our Tuesday host, Father Wade Menezes. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Tom. Thanks for pitch hitting today for Jack, and uh, it's great to be with you once again as usual. Absolutely. Let me give you out the phones because, uh, let me give the phones to you. That was terrible English there. Let me uh, pass on the phone numbers <laughs> because, <you> because uh, <laughs> tends, you know, phones tend to heat up rather quickly on Open Line Tuesday. So here's the number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, shoot us an email. The address for that, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. And today, Father, you're going to be talking about a, a wonderful topic here, What's in a name? What's in a name? That's exactly right. And I can tell you what the answer is, uh, Tom, quite a bit is in a name. Mm. <laughs> According to Catholic teaching, uh, numbers 2156 through 2167 of the Universal Catechism, you know, any parent in our one holy Catholic and apostolic faith does well to recognize the awesome responsibility one has when choosing names for their children. As taught in the Catechism of the Catholic Church under the heading, The Christian Name, how beautiful is that? Yeah. We are fully and formally received into God's family at the time we receive the sacrament of baptism, which is when a Christian formally receives his or her name of the church. The Catechism number 2165 states, quote, In baptism, the Christian receives his name in the church. Parents, godparents, and the pastor are to see that the child be given a Christian name. The patron saint, for example, provides a model of charity and the assurance of his or her prayer throughout the person's life whose name they received. Remember, too, Tom, that the actual name of the person is literally inserted and actually a part of the form of the sacrament of baptism. You know, each of the seven sacraments has matter and form. Form usually refers to the word spoken for the proper administration of the sacrament. And so we actually insert in the Catholic baptism ritual the person's first name. For example, John, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. While naming the three divine persons, the Father and the Spirit is revealed by Jesus, and Jesus himself as revealed as the Son uh, in the New Testament and foretold so powerfully in the Old Testament, huh? Uh, and of course, uh, we are told by Gabriel what Mary and Joseph will name the child, right? Yeah. Emmanuel, God with us. So as part of the sacrament of baptism, we Catholic Christians are further instructed in number 2156 that parents, sponsors, and the pastor are to see that a name is not given to the child, which is foreign to Christian sentiment. The sacrament of confirmation would be included here when choosing a confirmation name. Parents can give their offspring 
any name that supports the Lord's sanctifying of humanity. I like to say that Wade, which means wanderer, uh, <laughs> one who travels and goes place to place, a wanderer, uh, and I am an itinerant missionary preacher, so yes. I would like to think that my first name is uh, bringing in the Lord's sanctifying of humanity by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then also 2156 states clearly that the sacrament of baptism is conferred again in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the three divine persons are named there. These are words of both blessing and sanctification in the name of the three divine persons, the Most Holy Trinity. And in baptism, the Lord's uh, name sanctifies and the Christian receives his name in the church. This can be the name of a saint, that is of a disciple who has lived a, a life of exemplary fidelity to the Lord. One's patron saint provides a model of charity and of virtues of which charity is one. We are assured of his or her intercession. The baptismal name can also express a Christian mystery or a Christian virtue. Uh, examples of this last component, Tom, includes names like faith, hope, or charity. Mm. And I have a little goddaughter named Hope out in California. Ah. Her parents named her that. Uh, 2158 of the Catechism says, God calls each one of us by name. Everyone's name is sacred. The name is the icon of the person. It demands respect as a sign of the dignity of the one who bears it. Huh? And to think that some uh, ideologies, like the transgender ideology that's currently in the culture right now, wants to take the given name by the parents, which is sanctified by God, and call it a dead name, huh? Mm. Uh, very, very sad. We need to think about 2158 of the Catechism. Again, God calls each one of us by name. Everyone's name is sacred. The name is the icon of the person. It demands respect as a sign of the dignity of the one who bears it. In addition, the Catholic Church teaches that each baptized member holds a mysterious and unique character marked with God's name and shining forth in splendor, precisely because the human person is called to ultimately be with God for all eternity, to experience heaven, that is, uh, eternal beatitude, the beatific vision. 2159 tells us in the Catechism, quote, the name one receives is a name for eternity in the kingdom. The mysterious and unique character of each person marked with God's name will shine forth in splendor. Parents must choose a name wisely, then, as their children's names are intended to stay with them forever, even into eternity. As such, our names can help inspire us to live out our holy call so that we may one day find our eternal place in God's kingdom forever. With this in mind, then, instead of feeling any pressure when deciding a baby's name, all parents should greatly delight, Tom, in the prized occasion of naming their child or children and take time with its discernment process. So whether it be Rock, you know, Peter, or Humble, Paul, yeah. Princess, Sarah, or Friend, Ruth, a person's name uh, can reflect so much about one's identity. This is evidenced by no better example than our Lord himself as we declare his glory and magnitude. Each time we say his name as Jesus, which means God saves, or Emmanuel, which means God with us. And don't forget that the name also brings a touch of character. Uh, Saint Joseph, for those named Joseph, uh, the just man, he who is just, he who is valiant, uh, he who is prudent, and also a good carpenter, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. the Josephs out there will take, off some, take on some carpentry skills. Sure. So the meaning of our names can share so much about our character and foundation, a point that some parents encourage even regularly with their children, for example, when giving them their regular nightly blessing, say with their thumb of their right hand on the child's forehead at night when they go to bed. 
Um, for instance, uh, with faith-based names like John, Luke, and Rebecca that are related to biblical figures or saints, it is easy to discern particular and strong demonstrated qualities in those very biblical figures or saints, like I just mentioned about St. Joseph, uh, just, valiant, prudent, etc., uh, answering the call and whatnot. Uh, parents should view it as essential that their kids know their namesakes' identities and what they stood for including what they did for God during their earthly lives, whether biblical figures or saintly figures, how they lived virtue to a heroic degree, which is what we canonize saints based on, right? And how their uh, patron saint helps to protect and guide them to heaven. Uh, That is the child that is named after them. Children's names can also feature a nod to their ancestry, Tom. This is important, the church teaches, paying homage to grandparents or great grandparents or to godparents who have served as wonderful models of positive, impactful, and Christian living. In short, a child's Christian name can simultaneously celebrate a family's heritage. So each child can have a name signifying a lifelong link, right? Uh, While giving them the honor of always striving to embody the faith-based values and characteristics of those saints or personages they are named after. A boy named Joseph, again, you know, solid, solid example right there with St. Joseph. Um, it's, it's worth mentioning, too, we'll have to wrap this up when we come back, but i got a couple minutes yet. Uh, faith tells us that there are names that are prohibited by the Church, and I think this is important, uh, very important, in fact. Uh, the Church does, however, prohibit prohibit, excuse me, certain names. The Church's Code of Canon Law states in Canon 855, parents, sponsors, and the pastor to take care that a name foreign to Christian sensibility is not given. Some names are so offensive to Christian decency that if chosen by the parents, the sacrament of baptism is to actually be deferred until the parents choose a name that is more Mm. appropriate. Objectionable names include those of the devil, such as Satan, Lucifer, or Beelzebul, and names for pagan gods, such as like uh, Baal or, or Baal or Moloch. Uh, also to be excluded as names are curse words and derogatory slang terms, the Church teaches. So here's the deal, right? Uh, the birth of a child is a miraculous gift from Almighty God, and the selection of a faith-based name honors God and offers Him thanks for the gift of a new life. You know, uh, me and my four siblings, or my four siblings and I, we all have Louis as the middle name. My mm. sister has the feminine Louise after our father, so we have several St. Louises we're named after for our middle names. And we all took Jude for our confirmation name because of my mother's a strong devotion to St. Jude, and also my father's, but especially my mother's. And my sister chose to take Judith. In fact, she she took Judith with the whole name spelled, J-U-D-E-T-H. So, Open line listeners, give us a call. Give us the story behind your Catholic Christian name at baptism, your first name, your middle name, your confirmation name. Call us now. And we'll have more to talk about that on the other side of the break. We'll also talk with Joe in New York, Pat in Detroit, Maria in Seattle, Becky in South Dakota, Stephanie in uh, North Carolina, Michael in Spokane. It's a busy day on Open Line Tuesday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 
Hey, glad you're with us for Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes here on EWTN Radio. Uh, before we move on to the phones, and we do have very, very busy phones, uh, a couple of quick things here. Uh, Peggy is watching us on Facebook Live this afternoon, Father. Peggy says, I had a nun in grade school tell me that I would not enter into heaven because I did not have a saint's name, a Catholic saint's name, and for years that always bothered me. Yeah, well, that that's not what the Church teaches. Right, uh, entering right. heaven has to do whether or not you died with purposeful, unrepentant, uh, mortal sin on your soul. Sure, sure. Uh, not, not what your name is. So, uh, unfortunately, that nun was, was wrong. Uh, who knows why she said what she said. She should not have said it, clearly. Yeah. Uh, so, so, fear not, Peggy. Again, you're talking to a Father Wade, huh? That's and that's right. a first name, mind you. A lot of that's people, right. uh, when I'm on the mission band, Tom, a lot of people say, oh, Father Wade, what's your first name? Because they think Wade's my last name, and I'm like, my first name is Wade, That's you know. Funny. But hey, it means the wanderer in Anglo-Saxon, old Anglo-Saxon, one who wanders from place to place, and that's exactly what God called me to do as a father of mercy and itinerant yeah. missionary preacher. I do have Lewis, and I do have Jude, two great saints' name, one apostle and one of, of several St. Louis's um, that we uh, are, me and my siblings are named after, so there you go. Uh, Peggy, thanks so much for watching us on Facebook this afternoon. As a as a personal story here, Father, when we still lived in Minnesota some years ago, I met a Catholic nun, a very pious woman, uh, who told us that she couldn't wait to get her religious name because her birth name was Tuesday. Can you believe that? <laughs> well, her, there you go. Her parents well, named her Tuesday. Well, you know, I guess God does sanctify time, <laughs> so yeah, you, yeah. You, can, you can kind of stretch to bring a, a Christian notion to that, but still, yeah, it's not it's not usually normative to name a, a child after the day of the week, but again, those who are, fear not. Uh, your goal is to grow in faith and virtue and to sanctify your life with the chronos of man, the time of man, with the kairos of God, yeah. uh, the, the time of God. And, you know, during our break, uh, our producer, Michael McCall, was telling me that when his little boy was born, he and his wife were debating uh, names, and uh, they decided on Sebastian. And guess what? When little Sebastian was born, uh, over his heart was a birthmark, and directly behind him on his back was a birthmark, like marks of an arrow. Wow. <laughs> like like St. Sebastian, the early church martyr, uh, who died for the faith. So there you have it. You never know what God's going to do, huh? What's in a name? And if you What's wanna... in a name? Yep, Quite yep. a bit, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. It is Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade here on EWTN. When a line does become available, our number is 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before we get to the phones, let me tell you about a new book now available from EWTN Publishing, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle. She's written many wonderful books. You're going to love this one. You'll be inspired by moving stories of saints, including St. Faustina, the Fatima children, Pope John Paul II. You'll learn how to apply them to your daily faith journey. And of course, it's an ideal resource for the upcoming Eucharistic Revival. Do check it out. It's a great book, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, now available from EWTN Publishing at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Let's begin today with Joe, a first-time caller in New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? 
Thank you, Tom and Father Wade. Um, this is, can be filed under my good name in the figurative sense, not in the literal sense. And um, I don't want to wander setting up this too much, but um, it has to do with the first reading from today's uh, scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. And I hope it's appropriate for me to appropriate this saying, because it seems like Paul is talking to bishops, but I'd like, I, I wonder if it has to do with all of us professionals. And basically, in that uh, verse, um, uh, Paul says uh, to bishops, he must also have a good reputation among outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, the devil's trap. And um, I'm a professional, and, uh, you know, I, I have people review me, and uh, many give me five stars, but some give me one stars. And then, you know, if you look me up by name, it's like, oh, this is like a one-star guy. So I'm wondering, you know, if I can appropriate this saying, you know, is my reputation a problem, and how do I know if I haven't fallen into disgrace or the devil's trap? Great question. Well, first of all, we're all meant to get something out of every scripture passage there is. And in that passage that you're referring to, uh, specifically today's first reading, um, you have to realize that, that he is addressing clerics, huh? He is addressing clerics, namely bishops and deacons. But that doesn't mean that we cannot garner or cull um, good living traits, good living habits from that same exact reading. Uh, not to be a drunkard, for example, not to be one who bickers, not to be one who tells lies. I mean, these are common aspects of virtuous living when we don't do those kinds of things. And so that's the goal. We're, we're meant to um, soak up like a sponge everything we read uh, in, in the teachings of the New Testament. And even though it might be targeted to a specific audience, there's still a kernel of truth in there for everyone. And that's something that cannot be lost sight of. Great question, Joe. Thank you so much. And I appreciate very much your, your meditating and thinking about, pondering about the very readings of the day. Yeah. God bless you now. Thank you. Joe, thanks for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Tuesday with Father Wade here on EWTN. Uh, a caller named JP called and said, Father, I heard once that it's a sin to change your name because you're usurping authority from your parents and rejecting your parents' authority. Is that true? I have never heard that or read that uh, in any church teaching. Uh, now, I presume he's talking about the first name, uh, there Could would be. have to there yeah. would have to be a really good reason to do that. For example, you're put in the witness protection program oh, yeah. because of a crime you witnessed. Uh, surely, there's no sin there. You're not doing it for nefarious reasons. But if you're doing it simply to spite your parents uh, and to uh, denigrate what your parents did for you in giving you the Christian ba baptismal name, which was meant to be taken with you into eternity, then I would say, yeah, there's a problem there. Right. The, the, you know, if not venial matter, mortal matter. Uh, again, the, the situation would have to be taken a look at. But to do it for nefarious reasons, to, to simply tick off your parents because you're no longer talking to them and you want to make it known to them that you lawfully, by the courts, change your name, I, I would say that shows ill will, and that surely isn't charitable. Uh, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, right? But when I say you have to look at the situation uh, probably case-by-case -case basis for this particular topic. You know, again, the witness protection program is an entirely different thing. Great sure. question. JP, thanks so much for your call. Pat is in Detroit listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Pat, what's on your mind today, sir? 
Hi, good afternoon, Father. Um, I have a question for you. Um, this weekend we were up in a different parish up north, and after the prayers of the faithful, uh, apparently the uh, parish, uh, everybody prays uh, a Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if that was in the rubrics or um, if that's something that's acceptable or it shouldn't be. Um, and I'll hang up and listen to the answer. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you very much for your question, Pat. You are correct in that it is not in the rubrics. What's in the rubrics is that the four major categories of general intercessions be given. This is called the universal prayer, quote, in quote. We often call it the prayers of the faithful or the general intercessions, but it's actually called the universal prayer. And the four primary categories is to pray for the Holy Father's needs and intentions and the intentions of the Church, uh, for world leaders— uh, for those of the particular congregation, and fourthly, for the deceased. Uh, now, many, many parishes will pray the Hail Mary at the end as a way of closing. Mm-hmm. So the rubric does call for an introduction and a closing with the four primary intentions given in between the opening and the closing. By the way, uh, parishes are welcome to add to those four as long as those four are covered, huh? And it doesn't become too uh, too long of a list of intentions, right? Uh, but they, more can be added than those four as long as those four are properly covered according to the rubrics of the Mass. Then there is an introduction and there is a closing. So an argument could be made that especially, Pat, for example, if it's a Marian parish, meaning the patronage of the parish is under the Blessed Virgin, like Mary, Help of Christians Parish, or Immaculate Conception Parish, maybe it's a custom of that parish to close with the Hail Mary, the the universal prayer, the prayers uh-huh. of the faithful, the general intercessions. Uh, it's their custom as part of the closing. That would be fine, because it's just an addendum to the closing that the pastor says. It's an addendum that he adds on. Uh, but technically speaking, you are right. The Hail Mary, per se, is not in the rubrics. I see this a lot in my mission travels. To my knowledge, the USCCB has never said to, that it cannot be done, so therefore we have something here that can develop to be a custom in the United States, which would be for having, it would have to take place for at least 25 years to be considered a, an informal custom that one can do in good faith and good conscience uh, without uh, denigrating against the rubrics of the Mass. But I see it mostly only with Marian parishes. Great question. Thank you so much. Pat, thanks for your call from Detroit. It is a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade here on EWTN. Question here from Liam. What part of the soul survives after our body dies? How does it communicate with God when we no longer have a body? Great question. Well, thank you so much. Uh, the soul is the intellectual property of the human person. So we say that the soul has four primary faculties, uh, intellect, will, memory, and imagination. And the body has five primary sense powers, uh, sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing. We could also call those physical properties of the body or physical faculties of the body. The soul has its spiritual powers or its spiritual faculties, intellect, will, memory, and imagination. And remember, it was the intellect and will that were, uh, that were brought down from their original state at the fall of our first parents. Before the fall of our first parents, we had uh, a strengthened will and an enlightened intellect. But after the fall of our first parents, uh, the, the strengthened will became weakened and the enlightened intellect became dark. 
darkened. And so this is where concupiscence comes in, the tug towards sin, for example, the tendency towards sin that we call concupiscence. Um, so how does it how does it communicate with God? Well, it's the it's the pure intellectual property of the intellect communicating with its maker. Okay, and it and it. It, it, the will wouldn't so much be involved with that because one can no longer make choices or merit after death. This is why it's so important to live well while living and to choose for God, not against him, to choose the virtue rather than the vice, to choose the good rather than the evil, uh, to choose the thing for your betterment rather than your detriment, because you can no longer make choices with your will uh, after your death. Remember, the intellect is to know, the will is to choose, right? And so we can no longer choose after our death, but the intellect still remains its knowing properties, and we know God and we're and communicate with him in that fashion. Great question. Liam, uh, thanks so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we'll be talking with Anella from North Dakota, Becky in South Dakota, Stephanie is driving through North Carolina, Michael in Spokane. Lots more straight ahead on Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes right here on EWTN. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Love those busy phones, and we've got them today here on Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes on EWTN. Let's go to Anella now, a first-time caller from North Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Anella, what's on your mind today? Well, I heard you talking about the power of names and the importance of names. Mm -hmm. And my name has a very special meaning for me. Um, When my grandmother was expecting my mother, she had read about a nun in the Midwest whose name was Sister Anella, and there were attempts to have her canonized as a saint. And there, mm. it's, the fast-forward on that is they are still working on that process. But my grandmother said, if I have a daughter, I will name her Anella. And she did, so she did. When my parents were expecting me, my dad insisted that I have the same name. And our oldest daughter has it as a middle name, and our oldest granddaughter is Ella Ann, which is the reversal of that. Going back, my mother did a lot of doctoring, Um, toward the end of her life, and we were out of town for this. I was at an airport waiting to fly back to my home, um, and I was visiting with a priest. He wanted to know my mother's name again because he wanted to pray for her. So I said, Anella. And he said, oh, Aniella. And I said, well, no, it's similar to that, Anella. And he said, but Aniella is Polish for angel. And Mm -hmm. since I was a young girl, I have collected angels. Wow, beautiful. Isn't that neat? Now, fast-forwarding past that, my husband and I were on a train ride to Seattle for our anniversary. It was a monumental anniversary a number of years ago. And when you're in a sleeper car on the train, you get seated at the dining room to eat with other people, if there are less than four of you. So we were seated with a gentleman and his grandson. When I said my name, he kind of startled. And I said, yes, it's kind of an unusual name. And he said, oh, no, I know that name because my wife's grandmother's sister was a nun in the Catholic Church, and her name was Sister Anella. And I said, that is the person who I am named after. Oh, wow. Wow. I know. Isn't that incredible? Small small world, right? Yeah. I just think God has all of these these special plans for our names, and I'm, I'm so delighted that our daughters and their husbands have given thoughtful names 
to our grandchildren, and I am so grateful that my parents were inspired to give me such a special name as well. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. You know, uh, your uh, stories there, the two stories, uh, Anala, lend credence to the truth what I said during the springboard about how children's names can also feature a nod to their ancestry, paying homage to grandparents or great-grandparents who have served as wonderful models of positive, impactful, and Christian living. And in short, a child's Christian name can simultaneously celebrate a family's heritage and uh, a lifelong link of some sort, which, you know, you get it from your mother who got it from the nun, and then you meet a man years later on a train who who knew the nun. I mean, what are the chances of that? You know, by the way, Tom, I, I'd like to give a shout out uh, to two articles where I adapted today's springboard along with the passages directly from the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church. The first article is, What's in a Name? Quite a Bit, Actually, by Matt Charbonneau from August 2020, found at press.com. Okay. And the second one is an article titled, What's in a Name? by Father Michael Van Sloon from November 2017, found at thecatholicspirit.com. So a shout out to both of those men. Fantastic. Anella, thanks again for your stories and for your call from North Dakota. It's uh, Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade here on EWTN. Now to Stephanie, a first-time caller driving through North Carolina. Hey there, Stephanie. What's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. A um, little bit of a family dilemma. Um, my father is Protestant. My mother was Catholic. My mother passed away two years ago. My father is a retired military individual who will be buried bodily at Arlington Cemetery. My mother, when she passed, was cremated, and her remains are currently in my father's home with the intention he wants her buried with him. Am I committing a sin by not insisting that she be buried? You or can't, interred? Uh, the, the, the tr- great question. Thank you so much for your call. You know, God never asks for anything more than what we're able to give, and you are not able to insist because you are not lawfully the one who is in charge of those cremains. You are 100% correct in that it is not the mind of the Church to keep cremains until the person that the cremains will be buried with, in full body, that second person, you are right in that it's not the mind of the Church to keep the cremains until that second person dies, so that the cremains can finally be buried with the full uh, length body in the full length grave. You are correct about that, but you cannot insist. You can talk to your father privately and charitably and explain to him why, um, but you can't insist. It, it, it's and, and you're not sinning by not insisting because it's not within your parameter to insist. And the church never, our God, through his bride, the church, never insists from us anything more than we can give. Can you evangelize your father? Yes. Can you give him the reasons? Yes. Can you pray for him and fast for him that he'll change his mind? Yes. But remember, a lot of the military cemeteries are single, uh, they're spaces for single graves, but they go deep enough for two full-body 
uh, graves to go one on top of the other. Mm-hmm. So that's probably what your father has in Arlington. If, if your mother had a full body buried, she would have been buried first. Then when he dies, he is buried on top of her. So it's a two-grave grave, and it's meant for two long bodies. But now with cremation being what it is, you find it quite often now, you have a lot of cremains um, that are buried with the full-length body in that same kind of a military grave. I would ask your dad, Dad, is it possible that mom's cremains can be buried at a certain depth in your grave and then your full-length body that you eventually will have at your funeral can go on top of her cremains that's what i would try to talk to him into doing Mm -hmm. that would be the best thing great question uh, becky thank you so much excuse me uh, stephanie thank you stephanie for a great question stephanie appreciate your call checking in from uh, north carolina it is uh, open line tuesday with father wade here on ewtn now let's go to becky in south dakota listening on the great real presence radio hey becky what's on your mind today I just got a real quick question for you. I'm in a Bible study, and we are learning a lot about, um, I'm just beginning to understand, like, the magisterium. And as mm-hmm. I understand it, it's an interpretation by the Pope and the bishops on, you know, um, sacred tradition and um, scripture. Sure. So my question being, I know this is going to come up tomorrow, and I just want to be prepared for it. Um, is that something that can change? I'm like, is the magisterium actually a collection of things that we can actually read? Is this something that can change because people are a little nervous about the Synod? I don't know. I just want to make sure I am conveying everything correctly tomorrow. Great question. So first of all, in regards to the Magisterium, I want to direct you to the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, especially three great, great numbered paragraphs, 85, 890, and 2033. And if you can't write those down now, go back and listen to the podcast, but 85, 890, and two. So the Magisterium, uh, Becky, is is the living teaching office of the Church, the teaching office. It comes from the Latin word magister, which means teacher, huh? Whose task it is to give an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form, sacred scripture, or in the form of tradition handed down orally and through the written documents of the Church, like papal encyclicals, apostolic exhortations, etc. The Magisterium ensures uh, the Church's fidelity to the teaching of the Apostles in matters of faith and morals. Now, I want to read that number 890, and you are definitely going to want to share this with your students tomorrow evening. I think you said you meet with them tomorrow night. 890 is one of my favorite numbered paragraphs in the entire Catechism, and you'll know why right now when you hear it. Listen to this regarding the magisterium of the Church. The mission of the magisterium is linked to the definitive nature of the covenant established by God with his people in Christ. It is this magisterium's task to preserve God's people from deviations and defections and to guarantee them the objective possibility of professing the true faith without error. Wow. To be error-free in our faith. Can it change? Extraordinary magisterium uh, teachings proclaimed ex cathedra like the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption cannot. Ordinary 
magisterial teachings can have a development of doctrine. We would not call it change, we would call it a development of doctrine. I want to uh, direct you to, an, to a great saint, early saint writer, Saint Vincent of Lerins, L-E-R-I-N-S. Again, L-E-R-I-N-S. He has a wonderful reading in the, in the breviary, the Divine Office, uh, there's a wonderful reading. You, if you just Google development of doctrine or, or on your search bar, whatever search engine you use, uh, just simply search um, development of doctrine, St. Vincent of Lorenz. And his, his reading, his writing, excuse me, which serves as an office of reading, second reading, will come up on that. And he explains that the teaching does not change, it develops. And that development must be true to the former teaching that came before it. So, for example, uh, the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, we used to give only at death's door prior to Vatican II. Now the anointing of the sick can be given whenever one begins to be in danger of death because of sickness or old age. So, you know, you discover a lump on your body. It's going to be one week till you can see your doctor— another week till you get the biopsy, and a third week after that until the biopsy results come in. Well, that's three weeks away. Can you be anointed very soon, like within a day or two after you discovered the lump? You bet you bet you can. Because for all you know, you have begun to be in danger of death because of sickness or old age. Mm. When before the so-called last rites used to be given, which included the anointing of the sick, only at death's door when death was imminent. So this was a beautiful development of doctrine. It didn't change anything of the doctrine. It just uh, made it more available in this particular circumstance or instance that I'm giving you or example that I'm giving concerning the anointing of the sick. It, it's, it's, it only uh, enhanced it more. So uh, ordinary magisterium, it can only develop. It cannot change. And again, number 890, extremely powerful. Uh, it is the magisterium's task to preserve the people, God's people. It is the magisterium's task to preserve God's people from devia- deviations and defections and to guarantee them the objective possibility of professing the true faith without error. Uh, if I might give you an example, Becky, it's not a long writing, that writing from St. Vincent of Lorenz. I would make a copy of it off the internet, make a, make a nice master copy of it, and make the number of copies you need for each person in your class to get their own copy, and have them read it in the class. You read it with them in the class. It explains volumes about the development of doctrine in that short two and a half pages. Thank you so much for a great question. Appreciate your call today from uh, South Dakota, Becky. Thank you for it. It is Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade here on EWTN. If you are new to EWTN Radio, may I suggest uh, for your own edification one of the great midday programs that we have had for many, many years on EWTN, and that's The Doctor Is In with Dr. Ray Garendi. He'll be taking calls, talking about family, marriage, and relationships. Again, it's a wonderful program, especially if you've got a little bit of a sense of humor. May I recommend it Monday through Friday afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, right here and uh, only here on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now for Michael in Spokane, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio in Washington. Michael, what's on your mind today? Well, thank you both for taking my call. It's a beautiful day here in Spokane, a high of about 65, so autumn's here. And Father, I look forward to meeting you and seeing you hopefully January 19th, Immaculate Heart Retreat House. We're always glad to see you. 
Yeah. Great, Mike. Thank you so yeah. much. I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. And originally, my name was going to be Aloysius, but my dad did a little celebrating and couldn't spell Aloysius, so we changed to Michael, which I like. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There you go. There you go, Michael. <laughs> So what's in a name there? What's in a name? Quite a bit there, Michael. Quite a bit. What's on your mind, Michael? Well, basically on hope and gratitude. Could you explain um, hope and gratitude? Sure. What it is in our own lives. And thank you both. Thank you, brother. You're welcome. I, I, I love uh, his question. What is hope and gratitude? You know, hope is one of the three theological virtues along with faith and charity. Specifically, hope is the confident desire of obtaining a future good, we could say, that is difficult to attain. Uh, it's, it's therefore a desire which uh, implies seeking and pursuing some future good that is not yet possessed, but it's wanted. Unlike fear that shrinks from a future evil, uh, this future good draws out a person's volition, their will. They, they will the thing. Uh, hope is confident uh, uh, that what is desired will certainly be attained. Uh, scripture alludes to this truth. It is the opposite of despair. That's important to remember, too. It's the opposite of despair. Yet it recognizes that the object wanted is not easily obtained and that it requires effort to overcome whatever obstacles stand in the way. Um, so we, we want to embrace hope in our daily life and our daily way of living. That's, that's extremely important. And gratitude is the virtue. It's also a virtue. It's not one of the three theological virtues, but it is a virtue by which a person acknowledges interiorly and exteriorly, uh, gifts received and seeks to make at least some return for the gift conferred. Uh, by thanking God, for example, or thanking the person who gave it to you. Uh, essentially, gratitude consists of an interior disposition. It's hopefully, as like any virtue, it's a permanent disposition in the person's life. Uh, a grateful heart, uh, the old colloquial saying goes, huh? Uh, a grateful heart. But when, when, uh, uh, when, when it generally tries somehow to express itself in words and deeds, uh, it's especially more beautiful because you're acknowledging the gift that was granted. Um, and so we say, too, in our faith that gratitude consists of three elements, usually, uh, in the traditional theological sense. Uh, acknowledgement that a gift has been received, appreciation expressed in thankfulness for it, both interiorly and exteriorly, and as far as is possible to make some return for what has been freely given uh, to you with no obligation on the donor's part. All right. You know, so that, that's, that's what we mean by hope and gratitude. They're, they're hopefully uh, permanent, habitual dispositions in the person's life. This is what we call a virtue. It's it's primarily and, and definitely habitual. That's what makes it a virtue. Uh, and, and we hope that hope and gratitude are in everyone's life. Yes. Michael, thanks so much for your call. Teresa is in New Jersey listening online, EWTN.com. Teresa, what's on your mind today? Hi. Good morning. Good afternoon, Father Wade. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. My question, my question is, what are the requirements and the procedures before one can become an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion in the Catholic Church. Okay. Uh, that the person is living a life with no public scandal, number one, like uh, publicly known that you're in an invalid marriage, let's mm. say. Uh, number two, being properly trained by your pastor or the person properly deputed by him uh, to do the training, and then officially being installed. 
and you can be installed as a uh, Eucharistic or extraordinary Eucharistic minister for a one-time only situation or for an ongoing situation, like being on a regular roll call of Extraordinary Ministers of Communion at your parish. It could be one or the other. So there you have it, those three steps primarily. Teresa, thanks so much for your call. Here is Martin now in Wenatchee, Washington, listening on KEFA. Martin, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing? Uh, uh, My question is, I'm a World War II buff, right? And me and my buddy was talking about the other night, and... uh, Japanese kamikaze pilots, okay? They were they were taught and that the emperor was god. So when they gave up their lives for him, what do you think happened to their souls? Well, we we leave it to god. You know, one one can die for one's nation. Uh they they killed not for the sake of killing. Uh, in other words, they wouldn't have done it otherwise, but they did it for the sake of, of the nation that was under threat. So, again, uh, there's only one thing that puts a person in hell. I, I drive this home constantly on Open Line Tuesday. It's the only thing that puts a person in hell by their own doing, and that is purposeful, unrepentant, mortal sin. What is mortal sin? Three elements. Grave matter, done with fullness of knowledge of this grave matter, and done with deliberate consent of your will anyway. Well, fighting and killing for one's nation isn't the same as murder for the sake of murder, okay? If your country's under threat, you have a right to defend yourself, for example. So the only thing that sends a person to hell again is purposeful, unrepentant mortal sin. So in the case of the kamikaze pilot, you have several questions to ask, because a mortal sin isn't necessarily present for them being faithful as military men and for carrying out what they carried out. It's not the ideal. Who wants to kill during any, any type of situation, uh, whether just for the, the sake of it or, or within military combat? That said, uh, uh, you, have to, you have to reason the situation for what it is. And so, you know, we leave all to God's mercy in that regard. But it, that's, a, that's a good question. It's also a very interesting question. I, I commend you on, on that part. Number 1037 of the Catechism tells us very clearly that God predestines no one to hell. Huh? God predestines no one to hell, uh, to go to hell. Uh, for this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary, and persistence in it until the end. In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of her faithful, the Church implores the mercy of God who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Um, we hear these words during the Roman canon, uh, Eucharistic Prayer 1, Father, accept this offering from your whole family. Grant us your peace in this life. Save us from final damnation and count us among those you have chosen. So again, asking if they can be saved, you have to ask, uh, you know, is this a particular situation that 1037 falls under of the Catechism? I don't think so. Uh, There's not necessarily a a purposeful 
unrepentance here of a mortal sin, and indeed their killing may not have been a mortal sin because they weren't killing simply for the sake of killing. They were killing as a military man fighting for their country. Yeah. So again, 1037 is what I would recommend you read. Great great question, though. Thank you. A very thought-provoking question, Martin. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. It is uh, Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade here on EWTN. KD is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. KD says, Father Wade, what would be your advice to a Catholic who is dating someone who claims to be, quote, spiritual but not religious, especially after trying to explain God to this person candidly with no hopes? Well, you can always try to continue evangelizing the person with the yeah. fullness of truth in, mm-hmm. in and with and from your one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. And after a while, you know, uh, you don't want to you know, beat it with a baseball bat with the person, but but they got to make their own choice, their own will. Sure. But once you see there's no hope, you might want to question getting out of the relationship. Look, th- there's two things that absolutely hold a married couple together because they think the same in both of them. It's faith and morals. Faith and morals. If the husband and wife are not united on faith and morals— there's going to be a problem. I state this in one of my 25 specifically Catholic marriage um, uh, tips that I have uh, that you can find at fathersofmercy.com. Again, Father Wade's 25 specifically Catholic marriage tips. Uh, It's very, very important that the husband and wife are united on the faith front and united on the moral front. Uh, Great question. Thank you so much. Appreciate that, KD. And finally, this question from Nancy. Is it true that God died on the cross? God died in his sacred humanity on the cross, yes, because he had a full human nature just like ours in every way but sin, and the human body with its soul can die. So remember, you're talking about an aspect of the doctrine of the hypostatic union here. The hypostatic union doctrine says that Jesus Christ was one person, a divine person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, with two natures, human and divine. Each nature, human and divine, was full and complete and subsistent in his one divine personage. Each nature did not convolute the other. Each was full and pure in its form and he died in his human nature. And because both natures subsist in the one divine personage of Jesus Christ, his second divine personage is the Son, we can say that God died. Many of the church fathers say that, in fact. But then, semper distingue, always distinguish, God died in his human nature. Very good. Uh, Nancy, thanks so much for your email. By the way, if you uh, think of a question uh, between now and next Tuesday, maybe you'd like to shoot us an email. The address for that, openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Father Wade in the subject line or Tuesday in the subject line. That will uh, facilitate matters tremendously. Father, could we uh, ask for your blessing, please? You sure can, Tom. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our open line. Tuesday listeners this day and always and remain with you this day and always St. Joseph Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our fantastic team here behind the microphone. I'm Tom Price along with Father Wade looking forward to our next visit and keep it right here on EWTN. God bless.